you'll turn there with me, please, to the fifth chapter. And this evening we're studying once again the 13th verse in this fifth chapter. And since the beginning of our study about 21 months ago, we have noted in many different sermons that John has put the purpose statement for this book at the end of the book, near the end of the book, in this fifth chapter, a very clear purpose statement. And so rather than putting it at the beginning, where we might expect it to be, we have it here at the end. And John says here, you know, I've written all of these things so that you might understand all of this foregoing material that I presented you with. This is so that you'll know that you have eternal life and that eternal life comes by believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And we've also noted that that was John's method when he wrote the gospel account because there, very near to the end of the book, he also has a purpose statement where he says that the miracles that Jesus did, those things that he recorded concerning those, the sayings of Jesus, all of that was recorded so that people would understand when they read the book, this is to explain to them who Jesus is, and by believing in him, they can have eternal life. Now, the two statements that John wrote are very similar, but they were written for different purposes. In the Gospel of John, John is writing there to unbelievers. He's writing for the conversion of lost sinners, and that's his purpose, in order to give the gospel to them, those that are lost, so that they might be saved. And we go through that gospel account of John, and we find many instances where Jesus is dealing with the lost, where he is uh, dealing with down-and-outers, those that are outcast. For instance, we have in the 8th chapter the story of the woman that was taken in adultery. In the 4th chapter, there is the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. She'd been married previously five times, and then the sixth person, sixth man that she was living with, she was living in adultery because he wasn't her husband. Uh, in chapter 5, there we find that he saved and healed a man that had been infirm for 38 years and had no hope of recovery. Chapter 7, it tells us about Jesus' own brothers that didn't believe in him. In chapter 9, it's a man who's blind from his birth, and there Jesus made little spitballs of clay and put those on his eyes and told him to go wash in the, wash in the pool of Siloam, and then he was able to see. But it wasn't only the down-and-outers that Jesus needed to, or that we, John is interested in converting, the gospel account is also written for those that think that they're well enough, uh, well enough off that they really don't need a Savior. Uh, they're self-sufficient in what they already believe, and that would be the case of Nicodemus in uh, John chapter 3. He was a ruler of the synagogue and a member of the Sanhedrin, and he should have been someone who was able to lead others into eternal life. But as it turns out, Nicodemus was just as ignorant as the rest. And then we see Jesus also in constant conflict with the leaders of the, the religious leaders. And throughout the book, he just cuts through all of their pious chicanery. And, and they're the ones that devoured widow house, widows' houses. They're the ones that despise the poor. And of course, they are also people who need to be saved, even though they thought that they didn't. So that gospel account is written for all of those, all of those different types of people that they would hear, believe, and be converted. And again, the way that that happens is by believing in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. 
But as we come to 1 John, the purpose here is a little bit different in this respect, and that is the people that John is writing to are not unbelievers, but they are believers. These are people that are already saved, but they have a problem with one very essential point of the gospel, and that is the understanding that you can know right now immediately that you have eternal life. Eternal life abides in you. So conversion is not the issue here. It's confidence, assurance of salvation. Now that assurance seems to be a very settled question after all of these arguments that John has given us. So he comes down to this 13th verse in chapter 5 and he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now there are, of course, an abundance of arguments that are given in the first first four chapters that lead believers to assurance. And I'm not going to go through all of those, but there are two of them that stand out particularly that I really like to talk about, two very important ones. And the first one comes in the beginning of the second chapter where John speaks about the atonement of Christ. And there in that second verse, he says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That simply means that Christ has satisfied the wrath of God because of our sins by becoming a sacrifice for us. And he goes on to tell us there that he is our advocate in heaven. He pleads our case based upon his own blood. And I love that argument because it's one that takes us back into the Old Testament types and pictures, takes us back into the tabernacle and just these wonderful ways that God showed us in illustrating all of this in in the sacrifices, the ceremonies and so forth of the Old Testament. And there he shows us the propitiation of wrath that's taken place because of the sacrifice and the expiation of a sinner's guilt. So if God's wrath is no longer upon us and our guilt has been taken away, then there is no cause for condemnation. And the obvious conclusion of that would be is that every impediment to eternal life has been removed, and so therefore we have assurance of eternal life. Then the second argument that I really favor is the one that's in the end of the second chapter, and that concerns the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there he says in verse number 27 of chapter 2, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him." And the conclusion of that argument is that if the Holy Spirit is in us and we are abiding in him, if we are in him, then we have confidence that when Christ appears, there will be no shame in us, but we will be taken up into heaven to be with him. So those are just two of the arguments that John gives. And if we wanted to take another 21 months from here and go back through all of that again, we would come down to the very same conclusion that we find here in this 13th verse, absolute confidence in our salvation, in eternal life, because we have believed the record that God has given of his son. Now, I want to return for just a minute to the first part of the message that we did. It's been now three weeks ago. It's been quite a while ago. So I want to return to that and and the purpose statement of assurance 
the way I'm breaking this down is that two factors, two important factors that we're dealing with. Now, the first one is the stages to reach assurance. And I'm going to give these to you briefly once again, because these are stages that every person goes through in that process of receiving confidence that they are in possession of eternal life. Now, the first of those would be hearing the word. We must hear God's word. In other words, we have to be made aware that salvation is needed. We must be aware that salvation is possible. Now, there's this huge, glaring, gaping hole in much of evangelical Christianity today because not very often from pulpits any longer will you hear a preacher talking about the need of salvation, that people are dead in their trespass and sin, that they're on their way to hell, that they need a Savior, and pulpits, preachers in pulpits, really don't talk very much about that anymore. But you're never going to know that you can have eternal life unless you hear about it, and what you hear about it has to be the truth. Now, there are a lot of religious systems that talk about eternal life. Uh, Many talk about life after death because that's been built into the human psyche. No matter where you go, no matter who you talk to, this is a natural thing. People believe something occurs after death. There's some life after death. But our natural makeup does not tell us what that is. We don't know what happens beyond death. But the truth of it, is found in Scripture, and only in Scripture. And so you have to read about it there, or else somebody has to tell you about it. So you have to hear, you have to know that you can have eternal life. Second step in that would be believing the Word. Scripture says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So once the Word is heard, and once the truth is heard, you must give assent. Your mind must give assent to that truth. Now, I want to caution you about something here, though, that mental assent is not the same as saving faith. That's, the part, that's part of the error of non-lordship salvation, and that's why we preach against easy believism. Salvation is more than mental assent. It's submission to God by a person who has been made willing through an operation of the Holy Spirit upon his heart. But you also need to understand that believing itself is not God's act, Believing is the act that we perform. Now, it's made possible by God. We, we couldn't do it without God. Uh, God alone does that. But God does not believe for us. And so we can say that believing the Word is an essential act of man in order to have salvation. Now, in that same vein, though, it's impossible for a person to say that he believes God in the matter of salvation, but he doesn't believe him about the promise of eternal life. Those are two inconsistent positions. If you can't trust God in one area, then you can't trust him in another. And so if you say, well, I believe that uh, I'm saved by believing that Jesus Christ is eternal son of God. That's what the word of God says, so I believe that. But I'm not too sure about this thing of eternal life, that once you believe, you could never lose your salvation, that your eternal soul is saved. Well, if you can't believe God in that, then you can't believe him in anything because that's the word of God says. You can't believe in him and trust in him to save your soul without also taking everything else that God says. And one of those things he says is you can have assurance, you can have eternal life right now. Now, the third stage is living in the word. Now, the way that you know that the word is in you and that you truly have believed is the ability to live in the word. You see, when God gives the new nature and salvation, he gives the enabling power to live according to his commandments. 
And if we don't have any desire to obey God, if we have no conviction because of our disobedience, then we don't have salvation, and thus we have no assurance. But the opposite side of that is just this continual desire to serve Christ. And when we have that desire, then we have a confidence that that desire is only given by God to those that believe. And so if we have the desire to serve him, then we know that we have salvation. Therefore, we know that we have eternal life. Now, that's a theme, as you well know, that John has repeated several times throughout this book. It's one of the tests of Christianity, of real Christianity, and that's keeping commandments. So those are three stages, hearing, believing, and living. And those three stages result in confidence in the word. Confidence comes when the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit gives us the confidence that God's word is true. So if we read one verse that tells us that we have eternal life, we believe it. If there's one verse that says that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ, we believe it. If there's one verse that says salvation can be found and eternal life can be found only in Jesus Christ, we believe it. You see, the truth of the matter is there's more than one verse that deals with all of those issues and we believe them all. We have been converted, we've been saved, we have confidence in our conversion, so we don't have to have a 75-page polemic trying to convince us not to believe that, uh, what, the de- what the devil says about the Bible when he says it's not true. We accept the truthfulness of Scripture without question. And that's why John brings into this account the earlier verses that we studied concerning the testimony of God. What does God say? And once we determine what God says then there's no longer any argument against it. You know, I remember not long ago, well, it has been long ago, it's been nine years, almost nine years now, so it's been quite a while ago. Uh, when I first became pastor of the church, there, there was a dispute over the doctrines that I was teaching, and I, I really did nothing other than to explain the statement of faith that the church had adopted, and uh, I explained what the statement of faith said, but there were some who refused to believe it. Now, I would never tell anyone that what we ought to do is believe uh, a statement that's been made up by men unless that document uh, matches what the Word of God says. So I remember that after this happened, when all this trouble was stirred up, that I went to visit one family, and I sat down uh, with them at their table, at their kitchen table with the Bible, and I said, well, let's, let's just do this. Let's just sit here, and let's read the Scriptures together and see what the Bible says. And all of my time as a Christian, I have never had anyone give me a reaction that these people did. Never had a reaction by a Christian to the Bible like this. They looked at the verses of Scripture, and they agreed with me. And they said, this is what the Bible says. You're right about that. But they said, we don't believe it. We don't believe it. Now, they were willing to accept what some man said, trying to twist it and wrench it into some kind of a belief system that would work for them, but they wouldn't accept what the Bible so clearly said. Now, I see that as a problem, and it's a problem because somewhere along the line, that is going to affect your assurance. Now, here's what I think about it. I think this is why in many churches where they teach these doctrines differently, that there's a stream of people every week 
oftentimes even the same people that wear a path to the front of the church to rededicate themselves to the Lord. The Baptist church is famous for this. Rededicators. Constant rededicators because they can't get this thing right. Now, what I think the problem is, is that there really needs to be some biblical repentance. Now, if you don't teach that repentance is anything different than belief, and many churches don't, that repentance is synonymous with belief, then you never get the issue of repentance taken care of. And so you get being hit over the head or bit with that sin bug over and over again because there's this massive amount of guilt that goes with this if you've never truly repented of sin. So that's a problem. And that's why people don't have assurance because they've confused these issues about repentance and faith and there hasn't been any true repentance. So I've often said that what Baptist churches need is a few more people that are truly saved than people that are truly rededicating. Now, I want to finish this passage uh, with a second factor. We have those stages, uh, hearing, believing, living. Finally, we have confidence. Then we'll finish with the second factor. And this is the means of obtaining assurance. Now, as we go through these, you're going to recognize that this is simply a summary of what's been stated previously in the epistle, and we would expect that to be true or so because we come down to the end of the epistle, and here's where we find the purpose statement, and so we would expect that we would find a summation here at the end rather than at the beginning. Now, the means of obtaining assurance is the answer to the question, how do I know that I have eternal life? How does that become a reality to me? And that's the answer that's been provided supernaturally by the Holy Spirit in the inspiration of this epistle. Now, I like what we're, what we're able to hear, as it were, as John writes this, the confidence that John has in this matter. Now, here is a man who has absolute confidence living proof of assurance of his salvation. Now, in the last message, I mentioned that the Roman Catholic Church says that a believer's assurance is a pardon of his sins is a vain and ungodly confidence. That was stated at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, and that was one of the most important Roman Catholic councils in in history. And it seems that if the Roman Catholic Church denies what the apostles said, while at the same time claiming to be successors to the apostles, then what's the point? I mean, what's the point of saying that you're successors to the apostles if you don't believe what they say? Now, it's simple enough to see here that they're not the apostles' successors, especially in this area, because they are the true successors to the Gnostics that confused God's people confused the church at the time of John on this very issue of assurance. Now, there's, there's three ways that are a means to assurance. The first one is external, and that is the word. And by external, I mean that it lies outside of us. Now, this is often referred to as the objective proof of our salvation. Uh, the word of God is the syllabus, so to speak, or it's the outline of, our, of God's dealings with man and the way that God will bring him to salvation. So this word is a course of study of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it deals with the acts of God that are responsible for bringing us into a relationship with him. And so we learn by studying this word that God has given us that God had a plan 
plan of redemption, that there was a covenant that existed between the Father and the Son, and that's called the covenant of redemption. And that covenant, the Bible says, was established before God ever put the first person upon this earth. Now, the Bible clearly says that this took place before the foundation of the world, and believing that that covenant took place then is a critical factor concerning assurance because of this matter, because of what God decrees. Whatever God decrees must come to pass, and if it doesn't come to pass, then God fails in his purpose. Now, naturally, Roman Catholicism rejects this idea, and they take an Arminian view that God elects those when they believe. Now, in other words, election doesn't take place before the foundation of the world, but it's predicated upon the response of man to the gospel. Now, you can see that that puts man squarely into the middle of redemption, and that makes man the hinge pin or the swinging door, and whichever way man decides to go, that's the determining factor. Now, that's usually what people mean when they refer to the free will of man concerning salvation. And I'll have to say this, that what I believe about the free will of man is more towards the fallen will of man rather than the free will of man because the Bible never uses such a term as that. Man's free will only leads him one way, and that is to the rejection of Christ. Now, is assurance affected by that? Well, of course it would be. I mean, logically speaking, it would be because if salvation is in some way dependent upon a decision of man, then it's not wholly upon the sovereignty of God. And that conclusion is denied by some people, but it can only be denied because their logic is flawed. Just a few weeks ago, I was reading one of these fellows who said, made this statement. He said, God has sovereignly decreed not to be sovereign in salvation. God has sovereignly decreed not to be sovereign in salvation. So he said God is sovereign, but God is not in control. Now, sometimes people dispute these arguments and they say, well, you can't argue logic with the Bible. You don't argue argue logic with the Bible. Well, what are we to say to that? The Bible's illogical? Am I going to tell you the Bible is illogical? Explain that to the Apostle Paul when you see him in heaven. Tell him how illogical it is to use the Bible as logic when he's a man that... Uh, did point-by-point logic in order to establish his arguments and come to his conclusions. But that's not the only part of the syllabus of salvation, of course, and sometimes I'm accused of being stuck in that one area. But I absolutely do find it very, very hard, very, very difficult to think outside of the terms of the sovereignty of God, no matter what doctrine of the Bible that I approach. Now, another part of that, of course, is... The act of Christ coming to earth to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins. So there's a covenant of redemption, and that was decided before the foundation of the world. And the means of bringing to pass that covenant is as important as the covenant itself. The covenant's no good unless there's a means of implementing it. And God's means of implementing this covenant of redemption is for Christ to become incarnate. And then for him to live his life here, and then for him to die, and then his resurrection. And then the blood of his sacrifice secures our salvation. So where do we get all of this information? How does that come to us? Well, we read it. We read it in the Bible. We read it in places like this little epistle of 1 John. In the fourth chapter, he says, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's God's word that makes that known to us. That's how we know it. So if we believe then, 
what men have to say about it, then surely we have to believe what God says about it. See, here's, here's one thing people probably need to get straight on, and that is nowhere does the Bible say, he that feels like he is saved is saved. The Bible never says that. And say, how do you feel about this? You feel like you're saved. It says, if you, what? Believe you're saved. That's the important factor you to believe. Not how do you feel about it, what do you actually believe? So if the word of God is God's testimony, and he's God... Of course, he must be believed. And so we put the external witness into the category of the doctrinal test for Christianity. Then a second means that John has consistently taught us in this epistle is the internal means. The internal means is the spirit. And sometimes that is called the subjective means, although there are many arguments that argue that it's not subjective at all, that the the Word of God says that the Holy Spirit comes to live in a Christian, and that is as objective as the Word itself. So subjective or objective, however you want to look at that, uh, it is one of the the proofs that we have uh, means of knowing that we have salvation. Now, I've already pointed out the verse that we have in Romans 8, that where it says that the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, what does that actually mean, though? Well, it means that in regeneration, the spirit of man is renewed so that now it is in contact with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works on the new man, and it testifies with his own spirit that he's been brought to life. Now, once we were a dead spirit, there was no consciousness of God. We never thought about God, at least not in the sense that we would respond to him in certain ways, and if we would, then we would have assurance of eternal life. That's not what people think about. That's not what a lost person thinks about. Now, contrary to that, the lost person has no assurance. And this is why you find people that are trying all the time, working out and trying to figure out some kind of peace that they can have, that when they die, that they will go to heaven. They're looking for that, but they're never sure of it. They have no way of being sure of it. Now, in the case of Roman Catholicism, they don't want you to be sure of it. And in the case of other Arminians, they are convinced that such a belief would actually lead a person into licentiousness. That if you actually believed that... You could be saved and you have eternal life and you can never lose your salvation. Then that leads a person into all different kinds of sinfulness. That what a person would become then is an antinomian. That he thinks that it's possible to live any way that he wants to. The law has no effect upon him so he commits any sin that he wants. But he's still saved. He still has eternal life. Well those conclusions are all wrong. And that's because they don't understand what the Holy Spirit actually does on the inside of a person that's believed. So with those people, there really is no sense that they're supernaturally kept in the faith. If you take somebody who thinks that faith is something that they do, that faith is their decision, that faith is all theirs, then they'll come to the conclusion that their faith is as likely to fail as it is to succeed but because the Holy Spirit is in us and it's God that gives us our faith, the, the faith of a believer is perpetual. The Holy Spirit is always working inside of him through that faith so his faith can never fail. Now, do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter was weak in his natural faith and he fell into a sin of denying Christ. But do you remember that Jesus said to him, Luke 22, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. 
and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now there you see that Jesus was the source of his faith, and Jesus was not going to let him fall into final apostasy. Now what means do you think that Jesus called upon so that he was able to stay strong in the faith? Well, he prayed to his heavenly father. What's the heavenly father do? Dispatch the Holy Spirit to strengthen Peter in his faith. So the answer to this whole thing is the Holy Spirit is the operating agent that strengthens the inner man so that his faith cannot fail. So the Spirit then is an internal means that keeps us in the faith, and we know that when he's living in us, we know that our faith cannot fail, thus we have assurance of eternal life. Now there's one more means, and this again is a repetition of a constant theme that we find here, and the third mean, third means is evidential, the third means is our works. Now we're not talking about a work salvation, but we are talking about works of assurance, the test of obedience of Christ's commands is what this amounts to. Now, I hope that through all this that we've been through in these many months concerning this, this, this particular point, that you would be fully convinced that the works of a Christian are integral to his salvation. Now, they're not the means by which we're saved, but they are the evidence that we are saved. Martin Luther said that a man is not justified, or a man rather is justified by faith alone, but he's not justified by a faith that is alone. And what he meant was that faith in Christ will always be demonstrated. It's always a demonstrated faith. So you could never find a person that is a justified Christian who continually lives in sin, continually lives in a state of disobedience. In other words, you're not going to find a Christian, a true Christian, who is not in some way working out his faith. Now, John dealt with that in chapter 3, among other places. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And I'll stop there for just a moment. That, that particular verse right there, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil, is one of the very best arguments that you find in the epistle of John concerning the works of a Christian. That if a Christian does not produce works, the Holy Spirit and Christ himself cannot be in him. He can't be saved because this is the purpose that Christ gives salvation, to destroy the works of the devil. So where his works are not destroyed, you don't have salvation. Whosoever is born of God, verse 9, doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now this is one of those times when the English Standard Version has a really good reading of verse number 10. It says in the English Standard Version, By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that's consistent, of course, with what the King James says. So our works there are, are an integral part of salvation because that's the means by which we obtain assurance. Now, there's an interesting piece, I think, that needs to be added to this, and that is some Christians are very distraught 
because they struggle with sin. And they think that struggling with sin means I can't be saved. I must not be saved. And they don't have enough good works in their life or they find themselves in a huge fight to try to do what's right. And so they think something's wrong with me. I can't, I I must not be saved. What's wrong with me? But you can see that John is writing to people that are struggling with sin. And do you see the apostles often in the scriptures with this theme? It's a major theme of scripture. They're not writing to people that aren't saved. They're writing to people that are saved and they're struggling with sin. They're writing to churches. These aren't dressed, letters aren't addressed to unbelievers. Now a believer recognizes that there are two men living inside of him. I mean, there's an old man that has not yet been fully dispossessed. And then there's another man, the new man, that's been implanted by the new nature in regeneration. And those two are in constant warfare against, against each other. And so struggling to do what is right is a very common reaction of Christians. It's not a struggling Christian that it's, that's abnormal. It's a person who says, I'm a Christian, but I never struggle with sin. That's abnormal because there isn't such an animal. Those that don't struggle with sin aren't saved. See, an unsaved person never worries about the sin that he commits. He never worries about his moral rectitude. I mean, he has a certain morality that he may live by, but when he falls off the wagon, so to speak, he's not concerned about contrition and repentance to God. When he sins, there's no remorse. There's no, well, I say there might be remorse. There might be some embarrassment because of it, but he's not really worried that he's offended a holy God. But you'll find that people that are struggling with sin and they're conscious of that fact and and it's bothering them, those are people that actually can obtain assurance through that because they know that that struggle with sin means that that the new nature's been implanted in them and it's fighting against that old nature. Now, I could tell you that, well, I'll tell you tonight, go out and sin some more and just see what happens, see what happens to you. But I don't have to do that. I don't have to encourage you to sin to try to prove that you're saved. All I have to do is say, remember what happened when you woke up this morning. There's probably not a one in this room, and I'm not a betting man. That'd be a sin if I was, wouldn't it? But if I was uh, betting about this thing, I would say there's not a one of us that hasn't committed a sin today. And we feel bad about that. There's repentance, I hope, over that. We struggle with sin every single day. So I don't have to tell you to go sin to prove it. You already know it. If you're saved, you've already experienced it. Now, just to show you, though, that this is normal for a Christian, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to take this as our last scripture for for this evening, and then we can wrap up this verse. I don't have time to draw all the inferences that we can from this passage of Scripture, but we'll take what we can here that applies to the subject at hand. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says in verse number 7, If ye endure chastening. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Why is the writer talking about chastisement? Chastisement is rebuke. Chastisement is corrective, formative discipline. Now, why would he write about this? Well, obviously, he's writing about it because there is a problem of sin. And he goes on to say, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. Now, who are sons? Well, sons are believers. God's not treating them as lost people. He's not treating them as ones who have no relationship to him as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? 
But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Now, right there is the key to assurance. You struggle with sin, and then when you give in to it, you receive God's chastisement. Now, the fact that you, that you receive that chastisement says two things. Number one, it says that you can sin and be a Christian. I mean, that, that happens. Christians do sin. And it also tells us that if you are a Christian, you will be treated as a child that needs to be corrected. Now, there's, there's enough here to tell you that, that you don't have to go out to sin to find out if you're a Christian. You stay out of sin because you know the inevitable result of it if you do sin. Now, those that uh, would give the answer that the Arminians do that say that you can't have full confidence of eternal life because if you do, then you'll, uh, you'll just enter into licentiousness. No, that's not what the Word of God says. It says that God knows how to discipline us. God knows how to make us regret that we've sinned against him. And that's our that's keeps us from sinning. We know that chastisement is there. And aside from that, we could go into the different arguments about the love of God that he's implanted into our heart as well. Now, that leads us back to the evidentiary means of assurance, and that's God's commandments. So we're never going to deny that Christians do sometimes sin, but we do deny that sin could ever be a consistent pattern of a Christian's life. Those who consistently sin cannot claim to be Christians. We'll get into that a little bit more as we get into the later verses of this chapter. So John states his purpose here. All of this is written in just a little bit more than four chapters to give us a very heartening conclusion to it all. And that is that if we know we have believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, then we can have assurance of eternal life. Now, remember we talked about the difference between eternal security and assurance. Those are very closely related doctrines, but they're not the same. Eternal security talks about the future. Assurance talks about here and now. Those are similar, but not the same. You can know that you are saved right now. So you don't have to die to find out if you're saved. If you wait that long, you probably waited too long. It's too late. But true faith, true faith in Jesus Christ will give you assurance right here and now that eternal life is abiding in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to look in your word tonight. What, what important truths that we find here that the Apostle John has given we ask you, Lord, to aid our understanding of this, and we very clearly know what you have done for us, that there is no work that we can do, there's nothing that's in ourselves that brings us to you, but you are the holy God who is in control of all things that come to pass, and we thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you that you very clearly stated that if we know that we have believed in you, the very fact that we have believed is all the assurance that we'll ever need that we need have eternal life. If we have truly believed then the faith is in us, the works will be in us, and we know that we have eternal life. Thank you for that, Lord. And may we, may we always have that as a consideration uh, to know that very soon that you may come back and we will go home to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.